Okay, Allison, as you know, I'm constantly doing research for this show, seeking out connections, following leads, trying to understand what we're up against with these books. So I found out that Dolores is the plural form of dolar, meaning sorrow or pain. And, you know, it might actually come from a translation of Our Lady of Sorrows, which is a title attributed to Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I've actually been seeking out 90s examples of Dolores, and I think I stumbled on something that Val may have seen that may have inspired the story of this and every other book in this series. And to give you a hint, I would like to perform something that was a rap originally, but because I'm a white girl from Connecticut, I will be performing it as spoken word. Are you ready? I'm, I'm always ready. Okay. Joyful, joyful, Lord, we adore thee. And in my life, I put none that was, you know, some lines from the culminating scene of Sister Act 2, in which <laughs> the lead character was one Dolores Van Cartier. Wow. Just sit with that. What does it mean? So I'm thinking to myself, Sister Act came out in 1992 and Sister Act 2 came out in 1993. You know, Dolores in those in Sister Act 2 kind of would take people under her wing and kind of meet them where they're at and help them through their issues so they could be the best version of themselves. Is that not unlike what's happening with Tia Dolores? I do, but I also think you have to add in the murder. Yeah. So, I mean, Dolores Van Cartier, she was no stranger to crime starting out in those Vegas casinos. I'm open to the fact that she may have committed a murder. We know she was an accessory to a murder in the first film. That's how she got sent to the convent in the first place. Of course. She had that mobster boyfriend. I'm just saying, like, I'm throwing that information out there to you and you can accept that and maybe think about it, spit it back at me. I'm open to it. I'm always open to it. Welcome to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series one book at a time. I'm emerging spoken word artist, Mary. And I'm still Allison, coming back for another Josefina treatment. We're here to discuss Josefina's Surprise, A Christmas Story, a.k.a. book three in this series. And what a surprise it is that there is still no joy in Josefina's life 180 pages into the series. I am in such a dark place from reading this book. I just finished it, as you know. And, you know, I surrounded myself with things that I love as I was reading this book. I was out on my balcony. I was sitting in the sun. I was drinking an iced coffee. No, not Tim Horton's iced coffee. Thank you very mm. much. I was drinking a seltzer. Guess what? None of it helped get through this book. I went to Cracker Barrel two days in a row. So it's like I'm at a 12. I'm so This took me to a three. We're going through it right now. And I feel like the only way we can prepare ourselves to talk about this book is to maybe just start by 
just getting into what's going on in our lives. So how are you? What's going on? What's What are you obsessed with right now? So Josefina is a young woman of what will become the American Southwest. And we have been rather fixated on another young-ish woman from the American Southeast. I know typically we just say the South, but we want to be precise. And that is Hannah B., a.k.a. Alabama Hannah, a.k.a the bachelorette of this season in the year of our lord 2019 indeed it's it's been a real ride it's been a real ride you know don quixote right Mm -hmm. tilting his head toward windmills hannah brown other interests in those spaces you know I must say that we we kind of gave the show a bit of a break because we didn't want our coverage to be too comprehensive But we can't miss the connection between the deep and at times bizarre religiosity of this season of Bachelorette with the oversaturation of Catholicism in Josefina's world. Like, how do you not see that? It's these connections are so obvious that I'm almost embarrassed that we're making them. But here we are. And I have to tell you, I was like screaming at my television this week because There was probably one of my favorite scenes in the entire franchise this week, which is that we find her first where there's just a sign, a title card that says The Hague, and she's walking around with um, Jed. Excuse me. Then we see her on a different date in an art museum, and she's looking at a painting by Vermeer, I think, and it's a painting of St. Catherine. And we're looking at her, and she's holding a sword in the Bible, and then there's like cut to Hannah B's face looking at this painting and she's straight up like huge tears coming out of her eyes. And she's about to break up with the only sane man on this show who should be The Bachelor, but the franchise is racist, so it's probably not going to happen. Regardless, she says to him, or maybe is it directly to camera in a testimonial, but she was like, this painting has touched me because she's saint catherine has her sword in her bible and that's what i'm going through right now to to do a direct quote i've been here for a little while and i got to see all the art and stuff and i've never been surrounded by so much beauty it's really overwhelming i just i'm not certain that like that is what was overwhelming in that moment I don't think so. I mean, look, the lives of the saints are wild and they are really fun to read just because the stories are like you can't make some of this stuff up. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with them. I don't know if St. Catherine, were she alive today, would look at Hannah B's situation and say, yes, we are in the same boat. You know, I this part of me thinks about moments where I've been really touched by art and when you feel like you're coming and you're connecting with some kind of version of the sublime. And part of me felt this real anger at the fact that sometimes it's these people who get to have these really transformative experiences. I don't mean to invoke this so early in the show, but when a previous contestant got a private slow dance to the Cranberries performing, (gasps) like you were in a state and that was real. This, I kind of felt this like, low simmering rage of like why do these people get to have this experience okay let me tell you the bachelorette experience where i have felt this the absolute most and i am still not recovered from this and i didn't even watch this season when it was first airing i was watching it 
after the fact. Um, so Emily was the bachelorette a number of years ago now, and Ari actually was a one of the guys in pursuit of her on her season. That's how he entered the franchise. She takes Ari on a one-on-one date to Dollywood. And after being there all day, they go into an amphitheater and the curtain goes up and Dolly Parton is there and she plays them a song that she wrote for them. That's not right. I don't have words for this. I'm about to start screaming into this microphone. You know what Dolly Parton means to me. I do. And I feel like I I think it comes from a deep jealousy, but I also think there's something almost biblical this season in like the way the characters are such gross exaggerations of themselves on the show and the stakes are so high for some people the roller coaster is more intense than i felt with colton it is way more intense because you know this takes me back in some ways like i didn't grow up in an evangelical home i grew up in a catholic home which is a different thing in a lot of ways so like there's not a lot of emotion like let's just say like it's not like I have had evangelical friends describe going to services where people are calling out and they're crying and there's call and response. Catholicism does not encourage that kind of like overt emotion, but you do get people like telling you about their faith journey and their experience. And Luke P is a sociopath, but he also reminds me of like the person who's trying to be the cool youth minister who's like, hey guys, like, I wear jeans just like you, but, you know, would it surprise you to learn that Jesus talked to me in the shower and I briefly saw heaven? And anyway, I'm just going to, like, I'm super mature. I just wanted to share with you my faith journey. And, you know, look, if I end up throwing deli meats at another man, like, so be it. You know, I'm not a perfect man. I'm a sinner. I'm still on my path, okay? But, you know, as St. Catherine was to her time, perhaps this is the level of prophecy that we have earned in 2019. Yeah, we kind of deserve this. We sort of did this to ourselves. I just feel like Hannah is not, she's not that discerning, to use a faith-related word. She's not that discerning when it comes to these guys. And I really thought she was keeping Luke P. around because the producers told her to. And there was a no. kind, there was kind of a telling scene a couple weeks ago where she was out sort of on a cliffside with him. It was the opposite example of what active listening is, where she was like, tell me something real about your life. And he's like, anyway, I want to marry you. I'm so serious about you. And she was like, okay, but do you like spaghetti or do you like, you know, ZD? And he was like, I'm so serious about being here. And these other guys are coming after me and whatever. And she was like, oh my God. And she walks away from him and you see her talk to the producers. And she was like, he can't talk about feelings or like he can't have a conversation. And in that moment, I was like, okay, the producers are telling her that she has to keep him around for the ratings. But then after this week, when he shares his faith experience with her, she is so vibing on that. You know, I'll say this. You know who else really struggles to talk about feelings? It's Mr. Montoya. <sighs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I I feel like there are six main family members because it's going to take six books for him to shed a tear. He's just going to look really upset and get really quiet and leave the room. You know, remember how they reacted to the piano? Is that not similar to Hannah's reaction to the St. Catherine painting? 
I think you're right. I think you're right. And it's just, it's really weird. Like, I thought what she was going to do was find a painting that she barely understood and sort of use it as like a Rorschach test with with, uh, Mike and say, Mike, what do you think this painting means? A la, remember there was an episode of Boy Meets World where Topanga kind of for no reason takes Van Gogh's Starry Night as like the most important painting in the world. And she's like, Corey, the future of our relationship rests on your reading of this painting. What does this mean to you? And he's like, well, um, I think it's about aliens and outer space and this and that. And she's like, nope. And there's literally a guy with a beret that she meets in the museum who like is emoting all over the place. And she's like, this man understands me, Corey. We're done. That's what I thought we were going to get with this scene. And instead she's like, this museum is about me. So I'm reading on Art News that there's actually a term to describe what happens sometimes when you're around art that's considered this important and moving, which is called Stendhal syndrome. And they are speculating that when she saw this master of Frankfurt painting, she was going through this experience. I think it's kind of like the hysteria that we saw with Felicity's mother. Like all of this feels so intertwined. It's almost cosmic. Yeah, there's there is something going on here and I haven't fully parsed out what's going on and and where we're how we're a part of it, let's say, but I don't have any great faith that she's going to find true love on this season and I know that we knew that from the beginning, but I don't I don't think she's seeing the men who are left clearly. No. Um, In the way that she thinks she's seeing this painting very clearly, she's not actually reading the interactions with these men in a way that's going to tell her something meaningful. And I felt like she sent home Mike and um, Connor, and I thought they were the best two guys on the show. I think that we can pretty confidently say that we're going into hometowns in a kind of whirlwind like we both know and don't know which is to come which is we know we're in for some kind of like wild and spectacular interactions i have a feeling that the leaks of information have been so wrong because the producers are fixing the ending I think that's entirely true. And in that way, it's kind of exciting. Like, it's always good when there's stuff going down behind the scenes before the, when the gap between when they film the finale and when it airs. Even the the plot twist with Ari being a total jackass to Becca, and he picked Becca and then led her to believe that they were just getting together to hang out before the finale Mm -hmm. aired in secret. And it was like, oops, I actually want to be with the person who came in second place. Sorry. And then awkwardly wouldn't leave. And the whole thing was being filmed because he invited a camera crew. Proving once again, he did not deserve a personal serenade from Dolly Parton. But no, I'm going to try to let that go. Anyway, it's I don't know where we're going to land with this. I think it's going to end up where she's single. But you know, at the finale, she'll probably say I picked Jed and it didn't work out is my guess. You know, in some ways, her her energy and her desire to be picked first always every day. I kind of wish Tia Dolores had some of that for herself. You know, I think it would be a mistake to not see Tia Dolores as an independent woman who knows exactly what she wants when, as we've established, she's responsible for at least two deaths. You know, the body count continues to rise. Um, We did have a few people reach out to us, some in person, some digitally, many more digitally, I should say. You know, we left you on kind of a cliffhanger 
for you to string together what we've already figured out and ascertained, which is the connection between Selena, the murder of Tupac, and the creation of this series. Mm-hmm. What I'm kind of blown away by is just how important 1996, that summer, when I'm presuming this book is being written, how important culturally that was. We're doing this right around the time of 4th of July. In a one-month window, we were treated culturally to the films Independence Day, Harriet the Spy, Kazam, and Matilda. Wow. I don't know, like, I look back and it's like, this is how stuff like NAFTA blew by a lot of us. Yeah. Because we couldn't really react in real time to these important policies because it's like the culture was giving us this. Like, we had an Olympics and we had all this happening. That's true. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that I was 10 in 1996, like, kind of doesn't matter. I mean, maybe I would have known about NAFTA if I was more together as a person, but the Atlanta Olympics totally captured my imagination. Matilda totally captured my imagination. Kazam, the scene alone where it rains candy bars and no one is killed by the speed of candy bars dropping from that distance, that really boggled my mind to this day. I mean, I also love that kind of scale of free candy, but you know, there's just too much. Like we can't, and you know, adding Sister Act and Sister Act 2 into the mix, like, you know, as predecessors to all of this, there was just so much in the cultural milieu that we will never in some ways replicate or build on. No, and I know there's a few other things we want to briefly touch on, but I want to make sure that we give this book it's due because I think we're building towards turning points in the series. And while there aren't a lot of particularly climactic moments in Josefina's surprise, I think there's a lot for us to talk about. Yeah, let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So the publisher tells us, Josefina hopes her family will have a happy Christmas, even though they know she will miss Mama. When they discover that the treasured Christmas altar cloth she embroidered has been badly damaged, Josefina and her sisters are heartbroken. Josefina's hopes for a happy Christmas fade, but Tia Dolores finds a way to help the sisters' hearts begin to mend. Then, on the nine nights before Christmas, the whole village gathers to celebrate the beautiful Christmas tradition called Las Posadas. Surrounded by friends and neighbors, Josefina finds that memories can bring comfort and courage. Christmas Eve is filled with love and surprises that make Josefina's heart sing. And we'll just say, 
her heart isn't the only thing that's singing. Josefina is ultimately called upon to perform in what to me felt like a nightmarish series of caroling expeditions, um, closely attended by her father, who's supposed to be Joseph while she plays Mary. I need to start there because I could not get past that in my head. Okay, first of all, just to state the obvious, this is an incredibly religious book. And Allison, I know that I was raised in Catholicism and that you were not. You went to Catholic school for high school, so you have some insider intel. But if you're raised in it, there's a lot in this book that will hit home with you. But to the untrained eye or someone who grew up outside the culture, it might strike you as odd. But like the idea of these passion plays, basically I would say that um, La Posada's is a passion play that dates back to a medieval tradition when um, literally in cathedrals folks would act out scenes from the bible to benefit people who could not read the bible to teach them the basic teachings of christianity so when the spanish came to the new world this is something they brought with them to convert indigenous uh, people so this comes from that tradition And also, like, the Mass itself is a passion play. You're literally recreating Jesus' Last Supper. So there's a lot going on there that comes from straight out of Catholicism. And the notes, the peek into the past, they tell us that Las Posadas roughly translates to the inns. And an emphasis in the way that this is being performed is people are, are basically going throughout their area and they're going to different ranchos and asking if there's room at the inn and then they are passed off just as Mary and Joseph were and then finally it culminates in this performance in the church Um, and there's a pretty heavy hint dropped in the very beginning when someone else volunteers to do the singing as Mary and Josefina is kind of freaked out she doesn't want to volunteer even though it's her turn and it's like hi we didn't really need to get to page 55 to know she was going to end up doing it right and like, it's like we weren't yeah born yesterday <laughs> we've read these these books before i mean I think something that is notable about this book is that every single book in this series is light on actually is light on fun or levity and instead it's like every single book is obsessed with grief and kind of haunted by um Josefina's mother who has passed a year before and once again in this book it's kind of like the whole family is like well are we allowed to enjoy Christmas because mom's not here and you know, every book so far has focused on one particular daughter's dealing with her grief in a different way. So like book one, Josefina has a freak out because Floricita eats the mom's flowers, which she took care of. Book two, um, what's her name? Francisca. Francisca has a freak out because she doesn't want to learn to read or write because then she would know more than her mother or would make her life different than what her mother would recognize. Book three, like Clara has a freak out be over La Nina, which is a doll that in their fam made by the mom passed down to each daughter when she turned eight years old. And Josefina should have had the doll the year before, but didn't because of the mother's passing. But what's weird is that everyone in the book is like, well, why didn't she get the bo- the doll anyway? Like, yeah, mom just died. Yeah. But like, why, why did that stop the doll passing hands? I So here's something I feel like is really important for me to share at this time. So Valerie Tripp, increasingly with these series, she's like, I'm going to write over 40 of these and I'm going to slip myself in as much as possible. In the Meet the Author in the back of this book, 
she's moved away from the cute, like, talking is my favorite sport to this fact, which is she feels very close to Josefina, especially because they both have three sisters. And it's like, I see what's going on. Like, first there's the piano inspo on the plane. And then I'm just imagining this is also contemporaneously happening. Like, Val and the sisters are like not getting along for whatever reason like maybe their mother passed in real life and she's like check next plot point and like as she's writing the books it's like she's having her own stuff play out and then she's like this is the one where I get back at the sister closest to me in age which is why Clara with really no previous character development is like so uncool in this book. She's uncool, but honestly, I think Josefina is worse because (gasps) I do, honestly. Josefina is so petty in this book. It's like, just chill. At one point, she walks in on Clara. So there's another plot line where the church's altar cloth um, had been embroidered by the mother and it was kept in a trunk. And because of the storm that we had in the last book, it was damaged and eaten by mice And nobody knew that until they opened the trunk. So everyone's freaking out about like, what are, you know, yet another relic of their mother that is damaged. And Tia Dolores leads them all in repairing it, which in fact repairs their relationship with the holiday and with one another. But in the course of that, when they first open the cloth, Clara, Clara freaks out and leaves the room. And Tia Dolores is like, we can repair it. And Josefina follows her to the room they share and basically sees her crying and sees her with La Nina. Now, to this point, Josefina has been leading a hunt for this doll (laughs) that really rivals, like, the search for the Lindbergh baby. (laughs) Like, it's insane. It's like, you need to take a beat, honestly. But also, this, this showed a stunning lack of awareness about, like, actual sister relationships to me where I was like I mean my sister when she was missing something she knew exactly where to look first which was anywhere I had recently been right right like sisters know like the number one culprit it's sort of like when a child is abducted it's like don't look over here in the unmarked white van like look in the household like the same principle applies wow you're taking this to a Jean Benet place I always do. But like if my sister was missing a top, it's like it's obviously in my closet. Like there probably wasn't. And she never looked in Clara's stuff. Right. That felt really weird, especially because they share a room. Like instead, she's taking herself to that other neighbor's house. And she's like, aha, (laughs) like the girl who originally agrees to be Mary in the um, passion play. She's like, we used to play dolls together. I bet this chick has her. And then it's like, well, guess not. And what's really uh, the petty part of it to me that really I think it could be true to life for sibling relationships. Now, I don't have a sister. I have two brothers. When she finds out that Clara has La Nina, she reports back to Tia Dolores and is like, uh, Tia Dolores is like, oh, is she going to come because I want to talk to her? And she was like, she's crying right now. She's in a dark place. Um, More importantly, I found out that she's had La Nina the whole time. Yeah. Like, that's the most important thing right now. My sister is obviously, like, having a breakdown over our dead mom. And clearly this doll has helped her grieve, which T. Dolores affirms to her. And she's like, well, yeah, I get that. I get that the doll is probably helping her. But it's my turn. It's, like, such sibling stuff where it's like, yeah, okay, I get that she's having a hard time, whatever. But what about me? 
There is a greediness to Clara. So the next item that kind of comes on the docket that formerly belonged to the mother, you know, Dolores has this endless bag of tricks where it's like, oh, I've been keeping this, but this is also your mom's, is a thimble that was gifted to her by the mother when she herself was a child. So when Dolores was a child and there's this like really tense Machiavellian scene where you see Clara using the thimble and Josefina will post the picture. She is ready to rip her sister's finger off to get it back. Yep. There's just, there's no chill there where initially when the thimble is introduced, I was like, oh, the thimble will be like sort of Clara's gateway drug to get off of or like her transitional thing to get away from the doll. The thimble can be a symbol of her mother and also a connection that they shared, which is they're both good at embroidery. And instead, Josefina's like, nope, that's mine too. Gonna live in my memory box. So if you're not reading along, there is something distinctively different about her particular kind of childishness in this book. If you remember back to the episode where we talked about the surprise for Felicity and her own kind of Christmas thing, she was also kind of being like petulant and acting out about her mother almost dying versus her mother actually dying. But there's no levity ever with Josefina and there's never any hijinks. And that's what makes her kind of harder to relate to, I think, in some ways, where even as an adult, it's like she's so somber. Uh, Yeah, everything with her is really serious. And I'm sure it's shaped by the circumstances of her life. But even when we find out that the person who plays Mary in the nativity play because they're playing Mary, we have this intention that if you take part in the play, it's like, it's like a prayer. So if you sing, if you take part in the, in the play, it's like a prayer. And that's something that I've heard growing up all the time that I think it was St. Augustine who said, singing is like praying twice. So there's all these ways your actions can be a form of, of prayer. And the thing that she prays for is that they all have a happy Christmas, including her mom in heaven. And it's like, oh my God, this is so dark, but it's it's also so earnest and so beyond her years that, you know, kids at that age in, you know, if they were in a better circumstance would be praying for maybe a treat or, you know, just to have a nice day, like very low stakes wishes yeah. that kids have. And instead she's like, well, I hope my mom's okay in heaven. And you're like, oh God, like it's so... It's dark. There's also the kind of what's emerging as a trope, which is when you remember Felicity's wintertime night out where she gets to go to the governor's ball and then Ben is kind of oddly her date. This is kind of framed a little bit as like a date with her dad. Okay, this was so triggering to me and it was so bad. It's like there are young boys in this village. There has Where are to be. they? There are 12 families we learn in this village. There has to be a young man somewhere. I mean, even have Floricita be Joseph. That would be more appropriate than having the dad be Joseph to me. But then again, so I'm reading this book this morning, and it brought me back to something I've basically blocked out, which is I went to Catholic school for most of my education, and you took Spanish from, I took Spanish from the time I was in fourth grade through 10th grade, I want to say, 11th grade. I know very little Spanish as a result of all those years, an embarrassingly small amount considering how many years I took Spanish. 
when I was in eighth grade or seventh grade, our class Spanish final was to put on a performance of a play written by our teacher imagining a quinceanera party. Nope. Let me just take you through why this was triggering for me. I went to a school in which I had 23 people or 22 people in my entire grade. There were seven boys. One of them was my brother, Rick, 11 months older than me. One of them was my cousin, Fran. Okay, so now we're down to five boys that I am not related to. Our teacher was a very well-intentioned woman. She herself was Latina and was very invested in sharing the history of, um, she herself was Puerto Rican, so we learned a lot about Puerto Rican history. Uh, That was my first introduction to it. She was very, very passionate about what she did. She also, I think, low-key would have rather have been a playwright. So she was really invested in, like, I'm writing a play. And she came in very excitedly and was like, look, as a final, everyone has to participate in performing this play that I've written, and we're going to stage it for your parents. So this was a bad idea for many reasons, one of which was every single person in our class was white Mm. or a person of color, but not Latina or Latinx. So it was like we were all being asked to co-opt a culture to which none of us had any personal relationship, which was already like danger zone number one. This was in like 1999, by the way, just to set the scene. Okay. I literally went up to her day one. I was like, I'm so interested in this. Um, I want to support you. I would like to be in charge of craft services. (laughs) You did not say that. Yes, I did. I was like, look, Allison, you know, I will make requests. <laughs> I will make requests of people. And if you say it seriously enough, sometimes people will believe you. Like when I told another person that we both know that I was in the witness protection program, therefore she couldn't take my picture. Yes. She believed me. So with that same tone, I went to this woman. I was like, look, um, you're great. Can I be in charge of craft services? And I was told No. Instead, I was cast as the grandma. The premise of the play, I forget, but it was like a girl going through her quinceanera, which also involved a religious component and so on. The casting was this. My husband was played by my cousin, Fran. He was grandpa. And our son was played by my brother. I'm I'm processing. Like, just wrap your head around that. Also, I couldn't, I had terrible stage fright. I could not remember my lines um right before all i remember about this play is right before the curtain went up i was wearing if you remember this time so like gwen stefani was a kind of fashion icon to me in this period and i remember i was wearing a shirt that i was super proud of that was sort of like indian knockoff and it had kind of like mirrors on it that was everywhere you know what I'm saying so like that was a moment in time that like Delia's jumped on and like various you know places I'm wearing this shirt and I'm like so proud I think I look so cool literally my brother turns to me right as the curtain goes up and he was like I cannot believe you're wearing that was he wrong he was not wrong and it was like I didn't know that that was true until he said it to me And then as the curtain went up, I was like really going into a sweat. And I was like, this shirt is pink and it will show sweat. Yes. Also, I don't know my lines. But my only comfort was I realized that everyone in the audience was a non-Spanish speaker. So they would have no way of knowing if we got it all wrong, which we did. 
So whose quinceañera was it? Unclear. I don't oh, okay. remember who was okay. cast in that role, okay. but... And you were not 15. I was not 15. I was probably 13, but I was playing a grandma. And so you were the abuelita. Right. I was the abuelita. And I remember one point, our poor teacher, she was like, what actresses are inspiring you? Who are you bringing to this? Like, where are you at with all of this? And, you know, I just kind of hit her with like, I'm really inspired by Delta Burke and designing women. And she was like, I can't work with that. But she should have been able to. She should have, like, let me be head of craft services as I originally asked. Like, I know myself. Like, let me provide you with chips. That's so interesting. I, you know, I'll tell you, like, my competitive academic nature, I had to do theater through about eighth grade. And I knew I wasn't good at acting, but I knew I would nail the lines because I could memorize and, like, achieve it like a test. And so I was both like the most proficient student in theater and I brought absolutely nothing to it. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I mean, I just, it's not a bone I have in my body. Like I remember in high school, we had to do a reading of A Doll's House, which is not unlike Josefina, a very serious play. And I was cast as the lead. Now we were sitting in our chairs reading, just reading through the play. And I read it basically like Dario would read A Doll's House. And my teacher was like, kind of like, what the heck are you doing? Like, can you try to imagine the position of this woman at all? And I was like, honestly, no. Like, I I asked not to be cast in this. Yeah. I mean, I read A Doll's House in college, and I still thought it was a bit above, like, my station in life. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I went from playing a grandma to being, like, a woman trapped in a domestic situation she, you know, didn't want to be in anymore. And it was like, I don't know, man, like I'm trying to watch One Tree Hill and like do this and that. And it's not giving me a palette to paint the picture you want right now, basically. So when we think about the specific performance that Josefina is called upon to give at the last minute, I feel like in some ways this entire family is doing the performance of a lifetime of pretending that they're all okay when they're all clearly on the verge of breakdown every chapter. The dad, when he came in the room, so when they open the trunk and discover that the altar cloth has been basically damaged, like seriously damaged by the storm, he looks at that trunk and he he is so upset he can't speak and he leaves the room. Clara leaves the room and bursts into tears. Like everyone is not okay in this family. No one is okay. Although that's why it struck me as very strange or like, I guess, noticeable that when when we open the book, the girls are walking with Tia Dolores down to the town so that they can take part in like a community-wide cleaning out of the church in preparation for this. And they're singing, uh, Tia Dolores is singing the, the words to the lullaby um, that the musicians are playing outside the church. This is the lullaby that is the climax of the play and that the mom used to sing to Josefina when she was a child or a baby. The father comes out and he's like, oh, like, where have you guys been? And they're like, oh, we were just singing with the the musician. She's like, oh, I should have known that. The two musicians in the family. And then Val tells us Tia Dolores blushes. And, you know, like they both they share what I would imagine is a longing look. 
And you then think the, I didn't see that? Okay, but then at the end, also, I, I call your attention to something you probably also noted. When Josefina is done with her performance and she gets to the church and is basically like, knock, knock, can I come in? And the priest is like, yep, open sesame, let's do this thing. Dad and Tia Dolores take each of her hands and walk into the church with her. I mean, she the woman's obvious. The woman's obvious to the, but also I just want to say in the beginning of the book when La Nina was reported missing, <laughs> yeah. I did think Tia Dolores, would you stoop to, I don't know if murder is the right word for an inanimate <laughs> object. Um, I don't think it's stooping for her. I mean, and Val like always does that like recap. So in case you've just joined us in book three, it's like, <laughs> here's how we got here. And she's like, Tia Dolores has lived in Mexico City for a long time. And it's like, yeah, we know what happened there. Okay. So don't lead us into the disappearance of this doll because you're immediately making me think that Tia Dolores was involved. I will say the doll exactly like the doll in the Felicity series does come to a good ending where Clara sees the errors of her ways, makes sure that Josefina gets the doll properly in time for the performance in time for Christmas. And she makes a dress for the doll. And part of me is like, you know what Val, like I see you getting your paper and I'm proud of you for being so see-through because like clearly that's a pleasant company push because they want you to have a kind of moment of resonance with this story in that you also own a Josefina doll. Right. Yeah. It's all about the product placement. You know what I mean? <laughs> I I love that because my first American Girl doll was also gifted to me on Christmas. So it's like, I see you Same. and I loved it. Same. Although, I mean, I guess it's just such a surprise to me how religious these books, this book in particular is in this series has been. And I, it makes sense for her world that Catholicism is the way that they're all, you know, like marking holidays and making sense of tragedies in their life and so on. But I kind of can't imagine this book coming out now. No. And here's something where we've talked about this before that we have a deep respect for the series and something that I've noticed increasingly because I'm reading some supplementals for us to do stuff with later. I'm reading a peek into her world. The, the peek into the past sections in this book are so densely researched and I think so very much not written for children in any way if you look at the back of your book, depending on when yours came out, I don't have a B forever. I have a first edition. This series had an advisory board that reads like a who's who of Latinx history and of colonial history of the American Southwest. I'm not saying that the previous books were not well-researched. I think Valerie Tripp's own connection and love for places like Colonial Williamsburg is really felt strongly in that series. And I think there's such an effort with this particular set to get it all right. Sometimes we don't have a little girl as visible in it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think sometimes you can read a book and say, okay, this started as a story. And then the author made sure that the history suited the story that was being told. It kind of reminds me of um, one time you and I saw Toni Morrison speak. Mm. And... <laughs> no, no, that wasn't... Sorry. No, that was a like... Mm. 
Yeah. So we saw Toni Morrison speak, and I'm a, a big fan of her work, as many people are. But she was telling a story about how she wa- she was then writing a book set in early America. And she had come up with this whole scene in which a character was being chased by a boar, I think. And yeah. then after she wrote this whole story, she went back and did research and found out there were no boars in this area at that time. So, in other words, like, she wrote the story and then did research to check herself. I think what you're describing is, like, Val did a lot of research and then tried to find a story that suited that research. But unfortunately, and I hate to ding Josefina with this, it's not that interesting. It's just really sad. So, I'll give you a little bit of context. And, like, your instinct is absolutely right on this. Um, I was let into a very cool American Girl Facebook group a few months ago after the recommendation of a few of our listeners and someone posted an awesome throwback post about trip specific research for this and i didn't know this backstory so trip spent three summers in a row living in new mexico while she was researching this book and there's a quote from her where she says whenever i met a woman at the hair cutters at the bank in the shops i asked her about her grandmother If the grandmother was alive, I wrote her a letter and asked if I could visit. These women told me about laundry, cooking, and sewing, and other household chores. But most of all, they told me about how people and their families, like Josefina's, cared for one another, and how through hard work and strong faith, they made their families feel healthy, safe, and above all, loved. I wanted to make sure we included the sense of tenuousness of life, the ruggedness, and the difficulty of life on frontier New Mexico. Um, sorry, that last quote, I apologize, is from a curator that is not Val Tripp. Um, but it goes on to actually show a young girl named Christina Royball, who was 12 years old when this was coming out. And she was actually the girl upon whom Josefina was based. And they look exactly alike. Hmm. So, like, the research is positively stellar. I kind of wish Christina was, like, also called in as a 12-year-old expert to be, like, young girls aren't like that right or like yeah like what what else do 12 year old girls get up to i mean it's just it's such darkness all the time that you have to wonder if this was the lived experience of someone val knew and she's kind of projecting the experience of childhood grief or does she really think that it would have haunted her life for a year and beyond in every possible way like I just feel sad for her because she has no friends other than her sisters um the goat I mean you know she's living with a murderer who she's grown very close to but it's just you don't have a choice Mary you don't have a choice you don't have a choice we've seen enough lifetime (laughs) we've seen enough lifetime we have no sense about like what are the things that light her up what does she like to do for fun what does she daydream about um a lot of the kind of imaginative world of play that is very typical of childhood especially the ages that she's at and we don't really get a window into that there's just so much there's a lot of and this is what feels very catholic to me is anytime she thinks about having fun there's an immediate pang of guilt and i think she even says to tia dolores at some point is it wrong for us to enjoy christmas even though mom's not here and she can't you know be part of it and we're sad that she's not here and tia dolores is like yeah it's fine basically like i'm preparing to move in and be your new mom 
step aside step aside but there's automatic catholic guilt like well i'm sort of enjoying singing you know she's surprised at one point when they go door to door at the beginning of the play i think on the first night that when she's singing the old songs she's not feeling the same emptiness and sadness that she felt the year before right after her mother died she's actually able to appreciate them and and have fun with it and we've already seen established in book one that she has a really special connection to music and it helps her process feelings and so on but it's already it's met immediately with guilt like oh am i supposed to feel this way um and it's just sad that she kind of i guess gets over it at the end of the book but you don't get that same i don't know it didn't feel like a triumph or like oh i'm gonna try to have more fun now it just felt like well i think the work ethic stuff is really intense also you know we hear again about how the devil hates lost time and uh, a woman named ciara wrote a really long review in 2011 on goodreads and the one part I really loved about her review is she refers to Tia Dolores as being, quote, like a really cheerful sweatshop overseer. <laughs> wow. True facts. Which I think is true. She also says, quote, kind of icky to ask your dad to play the role of your husband, but whatever, um, which I think was wise. Yeah. I mean, she's tapped into two really serious questions we have about Tia Dolores. And Tia Dolores's love language is clearly like acts of service i okay i actually thought of that of this entire community where i was like this entire community is like we're not gonna do deep feelings it's not gonna be physical it's like we need the acts of service to bind us together like they didn't need to fix the altar embroidery they just didn't like we've all been through a lot this year with the flood there's bigger issues there's bigger issues and it just feels really yeah like it feels really weird that they couldn't find anyone else to repair that or to come up with a substitute just to kind of fill in until the family felt you know more I guess comfortable with repairing it instead it's like well we have to do this right now and even the gift that she shares with the girls the thimble is not something that's for I guess like a recreational use it's literally something to help them do more work yeah and I think it's kind of just again a reflection on how limited the roles are for women in this world and girls in this world that there is no creative expression or outlet that we're seeing I mean Tia Dolores brings the piano we don't have any reference to it ever since then of Josefina playing on it or you know trying to develop a talent there that might be an outlet for her grief instead it's like performing service for the church and for the community that's how you can demonstrate your value and your worth in spite of this grief so just Josefina which is one of the additional short stories is actually about kind of her discovering new talents for herself and working with the enslaved indigenous person in the household to find herself which tracks with this series overall um but at the end the little val trip um blurb is different because she changes it for each of these and it tells us she's written 44 books and it says like this is not a bio My daughter, Catherine, says she has hair like mine and eyes like my husband's, but I tell her that everything about her is all hers. Like Josefina, she is perfect because she's herself, just Catherine. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? The book is called Just Josefina, to be clear. Um, That's really weird. I don't get that. (laughs) Like, what is the point that she's... 
an original and that's what it means to be I think at some point, like, I think Val would have loved Twitter the same way that J.K. Rowling just keeps, like, rolling things out. She says in the other one, she talks about being in New Mexico, and she says, I learned how to make beautifully colored dyes from all sorts of things. For example, the bugs made a brilliant red. And you're like... What? Because <laughs> the, the other book that's supplemental is called Thanks to Josefina, and she's learning about dyes and all sorts of things. I think she went on a three-summer living spree making these books, and she charged so much to the Amex account. They were like, "You will write twenty books about Josefina." Yeah, they're like, they're like the amount of money that you spend on turquoise jewelry alone. You owe us quite a bit, Val. Quite a bit. Now I know we usually get into reviews and those kinds of things. I think they're important this time. I'm not going to read any in any great detail beyond what we've done. What I think is really critical is this book might feel different for us than someone who had this kind of traumatic close family loss as a child. You know, people who are moved to write reviews on anything, it's for all kinds of reasons. I did find several people writing and saying that this resonated with them really specifically because of a a maternal loss or because of a close familial loss. Mm. So I wonder if some of the way that we read her is just not going to be the same as other people who relate so closely. I think that's definitely true. I think if you've had anything in your life that would resemble anything like this, and it is by definition going to feel more personal to you. Yeah. But I think, you know, quite thankfully, I haven't. So we had a a listener reach out to us this week and send us this like absolutely gorgeous photo. I was really jealous of her house that she and her mother were going through her childhood things and they pulled out Josefina and they kind of set up her bed again and they set up all of her things and that the afternoon just flew by and they spent this time together kind of reconnecting over the objects. And I think that is something beautiful and meta about these books that this doll or this kind of connective physical tissue that you have to a person, you can kind of kindle their memory and you can connect to them through these things. And it's very cool that someone listening to our show was inspired to do that and to pull out their Josefina again with their mother. Yeah, that's amazing. My Josefina has been here for the entire recording. (laughs) Wow. Well, hello, Josefina. Thank you for joining us. She loves being here. Now, I don't mean to drop a bombshell on you, but I'm going to do it. Is that okay? Feel free. So whilst we have been recording, you know, we did have a few other pop culture topics to talk about. I'd been seeing these little leaks of um, someone who runs an account called hash, uh, at not all Geminis, which like, thank God, um, you know, we need all the signs saying that they had assigned a value to 12 of the girls. And this was controversial right out the gate because they made Molly a Virgo. Oh, wow. Wait, don't they have birthdays? That's the thing. They have birthdays, but they have reasons. Um, May I share them with you? Like, literally, this came out as we record an hour ago. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so they haven't done the full workup that I see just yet. But the top post is that Josefina is a cancer. What? And the reason being that because she eventually learns how to be a healer, that this is her natural instinct to care for others, and that cancers respect their elders, and they're not defiant or rebellious like a Kaya or a Kit. Well, that tracks for her, actually. 
But then they make Felicity a Sag, which I don't know if I can get on board. I, I'll i be honest with you, and this is like sort of a Leo thing. I don't really understand what defines the other signs beyond like the two or three that I know. And that's a weakness on my part that I haven't sought that out. That's a Leo thing, though, also. <laughs> I'm really? saying. I know. I'm saying. Somebody know. called me out because we have a friend who likes to accuse me of the fact that she's a cancer, and I like to breeze right past cancer season and I did announce I think on Twitter that Leo season was almost upon us when I think it was technically the start of the Gemini season yes but I was just feeling it like it's almost our time so one of the reasons though that Molly is assigned to be a Virgo is quote she's the only one with glasses (laughs) feels like a Virgo nerd to me best tap dancer in her class known as a big schemer and I'm like, okay, I see you. But they make Mary Ellen the Leo, which we can't assess because we don't know her. Who is that? Um, she's one of the friends. She's not OG. I don't feel great about that. I mean, I wish Me it was an OG. You. I can't. I wish I could have a hot take, but I can't. I don't know who that is. She's from the 1950s. She's set in 1954. Mm. She's she actually has like a real cute outfit. I mean, I'll check it out. I don't know. You know, I apologize for just dropping that in there, but it's like when people send this content to you, like we've gotten it sent five times to us in the past hour. It's like we have to take that up. We we absolutely had to take that up. You are very correct to bring that to our attention. Exactly. Especially in this season that we're in. Yeah, of course. It's almost Leo season. Now, did you have other topics that you felt were pressing? Like, everyone knows we'll come back around to discuss the finale of Batch as it happens, but are there other things that you think we have to get to? Well, I mean, I really wish, I'll just say this, that I really wish we had started the podcast later so that we could have benefited from some late-breaking research offered by our president yesterday. Oh, boy. About the American Revolution. About the airplanes? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that there were, we were fighting by air in the American Revolution. I wish I had known that. I felt embarrassed. I felt really embarrassed for a lot of reasons. Um, But (laughs) I think, I think part of what's come out of this is some really beautiful and hilarious tweets about, you know, what John Adams would be saying from the airport. And I did bravely dash off a tweet pretending to be Felicity in an airport. So, you know, it's created some good it's content essential. For this. It's essential. So time is not linear, as we know. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to totally say that that could have never happened on a timeline. But insofar as we understand, and we're just women with PhDs, so people don't necessarily care what we think. I don't think that occurred. I'm not willing to go there at this time. No. Interesting. I don't know that we were fighting by air in the American Revolution. But, you know, if someone has evidence to the contrary, please send it to us, I guess. Please send it. And I'll just say, I I was at a friend gathering yesterday of people who also have a podcast. It's called The Hold Up Podcast. And they invited each of us to share a 4th of July memory and to see, like, what things from our childhood related to 4th of July hold up. And they asked me what my favorite part of the 4th of July was and I said I actually hate this holiday (laughs) and there's nothing like being the person who sucks all the air out of the room Mm -hmm. um and I was like I love this party I love this like annual get together I was like I I strongly dislike this holiday because it's everything I don't like about patriotism which is shallow 
empty kind of professions about your country versus like doing hard work to be patriotic. And then they were like, okay, who likes hot dogs? Uh, that's Which, really frustrating. Well, well, no, like that was the proper response because like we were supposed to be talking about like food memories about 4th of July. <laughs> oh, wait, were you being recorded when you said this? Yes. Oh, yes. okay, got it. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> like I took it to a place that is not where it was going. So like I did that. But even reading these books to me is more of a patriotic act than participating in something that is a strain on our already tight government resources. But that's just me. Yeah. And honestly, reading these books and reading them over the 4th of July holiday, it's really hard to sit with even these books, which um, invite questions about how nations are imagined and how borders are constantly negotiated, just like history, and to not think about the current situation at our borders and the children, you know, being held in detention centers called by some concentration camps. And it makes it really hard to just go to a fireworks display and be like, yeah, I can get by behind some really kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a placebo effect, I guess. Yeah. And I went to a parade yesterday called the Boombox Parade in Wilmantic, Connecticut, which I'd not been to before, but I really love this parade. And if anyone lives around here, I totally encourage you to go because it had a group um, marching with signs about, you know, how we should welcome asylum seekers and how that's actually the embodiment of our founding ideals. But it also had a group of suffragette reenactors. Love that. And they gave me life. They were literally screaming at the crowd, like, we fought in the Great War, too. Period. They did. Yes, they did. And someone was like, it's 1919 already, okay? What more do we need to do? This idea is kind of trademarked by your partner, so I'm just going to publicly trademark it again. And I know that's not how TM works, but in podcasting it does. When will we finally have a farmer at World War One American Girl? I would love that. I mean, you two love the farmerette. It's like one of the things you bonded over. And I love that for you both. And I support you in it. <laughs> like people don't know this about us on the show yet. But you and I were both kind of in like a weird intellectual and occupational space for several years. And our thing was giving talks separately and together about World War One for pay. And it was like, what does it mean that our side hustle as millennials is talking about the Great War? Yeah. I mean, but it, it, was. Felt, it was and is. I mean, we're still open to it. You can still call pay us. us to come. Call us. The worst time ever was when we were paid by our mentor to come speak to her ladies group. And we took ourselves to what do you call it? Applebee's before. I was going to say, you can name the franchise. We all know what it is. It's Applebee's and we got food poisoning and I forgot that they, <laughs> it was a potluck. So we literally were like both wanted to die and then got to the talk and they were like, girls, like we bought dinner for you. And I was like, I'm going to die. And then we had to give our talk. It was fine. I don't think it was food poisoning so much as like par for the course at that establishment. Yeah, you're right. It was probably like a good day at Applebee's, but a bad day for, for me. Us. Yeah, for us. I say that with the full awareness of like, I'll be back. Yeah. So we I chose don't... it. We keep choosing it. It's a lifestyle. Just like Hannah B wants to be chosen every day, we will, in a bi-monthly fashion, we will choose you, Applebee's. Yep. And I feel I instantly hate myself for that, but it's just where I'm at. 
you know, you don't have as much self-loathing and Catholic guilt as the Montoyas, and that's a blessing. No one possibly could. Honestly, I was checking in with myself after reading this book, and I was like, man, where do I stand on like a scale of one to Montoya? And I guess I'm going to put myself at like a half Tia Dolores because I think she has zero guilt and zero shame <laughs> because she's like a murderer walking amongst them who's still like inexplicably like th- issuing threats from the devil. So I don't think she's carrying a lot of guilt around and I'm no. trying not to carry a lot of Catholic guilt around. So I guess like she's emerged as an aspirational hero for me, minus the homicidal tendencies. So something a little bit shocking, you know, we're going to get to Josefina's birthday next week. And that's when we'll do like our full roundup on, I'm not convinced she's a cancer. Please respond to us. Yeah, we would love your feedback. That's not her birth date. Anyway, we learn that in book four, there's going to be a quote, terrifying adventure with Josefina's Pueblo Indian friend, Mariana. Where is she coming from? Uh, this is, yeah. This I'm is, nervous. I'm extremely nervous. Also, the only reference to indigenous people we get in this book is peek into the past when you find out that they have their own community celebrations around Christmas time that are based in their culture, but it's not represented in the book at all. No. But that's colonialism. I mean, that is like the, we've been asking what's the bigger arc. It's like, that's the arc that we're building toward. Right. And this focus on Catholicism should keep reminding us that Josefina and the Montoyas are both the victims or recipients of colonization. Like they have received Catholicism, but they're also colonizers and that they keep participating in its spread. If you don't think she's going to become a Pinkerton as an older woman, I can't help you. I actually think she could be a Pinkerton who, like, by day or her cover is being a nun. Oh, my gosh. I love that so much in, like, a Catholic charity context for her. I love that. And you know what? She's got those, like, beautiful steely eyes. And that's, like, all people are really going to see with the habit. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be like, I wonder what else is going on there. And you you never guess it. And at some point, like, someone will wrong her and they'll be, like, afraid to confess because her eyes are so piercing. And she'll literally hold up La Nina and be like, tell La Nina. Yeah. What did you do? What do you know? And she's known all along who Tia Dolores is, but she won't expose her. Wow. Because she's like, you and I are the same. I think they become the same. I, I think that's that's the crux of it. I don't think they start the same, but I think the house of pain becomes her. Wow, wow, wow. You know, hopefully next time we go on an uptick, like, I need some joy for her. I'm glad she has a friend. It's probably going to be problematic, but I need this to happen. I mean, paging Sister Act, I'm hoping we go from Our Lady of Sorrows to Joyful Joyful real fast. You know, from from your words to our producer's ears, right? That's right. Val, I hope you're hearing us. Thanks, Val. Thanks for all you do, Val. Now, if people have Val Trip hot tips, where should they find you? I can be found on Twitter at MaryMahoney123 and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. You can find me at Allison Horrocks on both Instagram and Twitter. And we would absolutely love if you would drop us a line on one of our social medias. Um, 
Oh, I just sounded older. So on one of our social media <laughs> platforms, we are A Girls Pod on Twitter, and you can reach us there or send us a message. You may also find us on Instagram, where we are American Girls Podcast, or through the email on Gmail, where you can send us a message at American Girls Pod. Excellent. Well, I guess we'll see you next time as we celebrate Josefina's birthday. And I sincerely hope it's not one of the saddest birthday celebrations that I've had to witness in my young life. I hope so too. Until next time. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 